0: In a world
1: <laughs> where you have many thumbs and one rule about
0: that. Oh yeah, that would be a really good, that that would be a really good opening. In a world where rule of thumb rules the day, Binary Sandy has some things to say.
2: In Just a world like... where thumbs rule over us all. Rule <laughs> of thumbs. No, wait, we meant rules of thumb. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, mean, rules of thumb. Grammar is Harmony.
1: <laughs> so, so we're talking about rules of thumb.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: I like rules of thumb. I like, I like rules the of idea thumb. of rules of thumb a lot.
1: I hate it. I am totally opposed to it except for the fact that then, when you do all the work to like, oh no, we don't use rules of thumb. We do all of the calculations, and then the result is very much like the rule of thumb. However, it's based on the calculations and not the rule of thumb. it's not always true, but it frequently, it's like, well, we did all this stuff, but in reality, a 10% difference in your asset allocation doesn't really make a difference at all. (laughs) So rule of thumb.
0: (laughs) It's good to check a rule of thumb often. You know, it's just like, it's, it's good not to be like, well, that's just what people do. Okay. It's just the truth.
1: (laughs) It's how it's done here.
0: (laughs) And I'm pretty sure that like, That's exactly what people want you to do when they come to you is this idea of being like, okay, what about me?
2: Mm.
0: (laughs) You know, this is like, it's just, it's the difference between the average and the individual, you know, it's like, I don't know, one informs the other one is like, they're related and yet it's not, it's not satisfying. And, and, and yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting that often doing all that work and all those calculations come up to the same rule of thumb.
1: I'm trying to remember what I read literally three days ago when I was like, it was my t- I was in BC and it was a different time from everyone else in my internal clock. And so of course I was filling the time by reading and it was something about Ah, oh, shoot, it would have been so useful in the context of this conversation. And it was they did, like, it was this huge study that they had done about what the average this kind of person was. And when they looked at all the data after they calculated the average, not a single person was actually the average. Okay, it was <laughs> useless. The average was a useless number. Yeah. Inapplicable to any of the people actually participating in the study. What it was about and who wrote it, I will never know. <laughs>
0: No, but this is the case again, I've seen probably not this specific study, but the same kind of, I've seen this written about a bunch of times. This idea that's like the average person does not exist. And yet it, it's an informative thing. It's an informative tool. It's like, it's like, Oh, what is it in law? Um, They have a, uh, they have a, a, a tool when they, when they, um. Oh shoot. What's the actual word for it? I'm not going to remember, but it's this idea of like, when, when they're trying to compare what, what is reasonable and what is not reasonable for a, a certain person to do, a certain profession or certain perf- situation, they've built a legal model of a, this is like, this is what a reasonable police officer would do. And then we can compare you to that standard and therefore decide whether this is appropriate or not. I'm pretty sure it's Malcolm Gladwell's podcast
2: or one more, of those things where like perfect.
1: we only we only evaluate the 20 seconds before a decision to shoot. It, and anything outside of those tolerances, we don't care about because that's not normal.
0: It I think it was literally in that in a podcast that was talking about that. And I it's bugging me that I can't think of the word, but this is the same idea. It's like you build the average person so that you can talk about big things in relation to that, because the average person both exists and doesn't exist. You know, it's like, this is the average Torontonian. This is the average rent and the average spending. And everybody looks at it as like, that's insane. And yet it's still a useful way to compare this to average income trends and compare big things like it matters and it doesn't matter, right? Isn't this the same kind of thing, uh, the thing that jumped in my head right away is, like, talking about something like mortality tables, you know? They give you a ton of information about big swats, but they don't tell you anything about when you're going to die.
1: Yeah, yet, generally speaking, so really the aha moment from mortality tables comes from telling people, like, well, in a population of people roughly similar to you, 25 out of 100 will keep living after age 95. Like, that's kind of an aha moment. Like, oh, 95, I thought I was only going to live to 72. Totally. But I would like to hear from the science communicator (laughs) what what averages are useful for.
0: (laughs) Yes. Please. Let's let the opera singer shut up and listen to the scientific.
1: Uh, And this person, whatever she is. (laughs) we will both be quiet now
2: listen to the the educated person oh boy um yeah it's kind of funny because uh i remember reading an article i've got it bookmarked somewhere too um about you know one of those studies that looked at uh averages across a whole bunch of different domains and it's like there there wasn't an average person across you know more than like three of the domains where they actually fell within some very narrow band of average but the average on any one domain was fairly useful Um, so you could look at you know what's your average retirement age and that might be somewhat useful and you could look at maybe you know what the average age of death for someone in given demographic might be and what the average retirement spending might be and each of those taken in isolation the average might inform something for you but you're almost not going to be average on all of those Mm. very unlikely
1: you know what that reminds me too of the you know you can talk about when you're explaining to somebody years away from their retirement the maximum canada pension plan benefit is this thirteen thousand dollars a year give or take and then the average canada pension plan benefit is actually sixty six hundred dollars So half, most people only get half or not most, excuse me. When you count up everybody that's receiving CPP, when add them all up and then divide them by the number of them, that number is (laughs) half of the 13,000. So is that useful? Well, it does it mean anything. Well, it doesn't mean a whole lot to somebody who their retirement income is many magnitudes higher than $13,000 a year. Like what's a difference? What's $6,000 a year going to do nothing to those people? Well, it means an awful lot to somebody who has no other sources of retirement income. Yeah. So the average is useful in that case, depending on the other characteristics of the person. If you yeah. don't know if you know, like if you know all the other points in the graph, but you don't know that one average can be useful. But if, and, but actually it's still not that useful if you don't know where the calculation actually comes from in the end. Anyway, right? like if you don't know that 17% of your working years are dropped out of the calculation or whatever, then what, what does it, how, so I know the average and I know the maximum, how do I have any way of interpreting where I would fit? And I remember the reason I, I go back to this is because back when I was in banking, we had a very rudimentary, almost made out of sticks and rocks retirement calculator, and, it would, and, and I remember somebody training me on it for like 30 seconds and saying like, ah, it just defaults to the average. Just use the average. <laughs> <laughs> i was thinking, okay. But there was no context for when you would say, ah, average probably makes sense for you versus, mm, mm. let's check the numbers and what actually goes into the calculation. Tangent. Yeah, so
2: average CPP is a interesting one because that figure can be very informative if you're thinking, Okay, here's the maximum CPP. I should get the maximum, and then you go, "Well, the average is actually much lower than that." And then it gives you pause, and then you can look into it. Just taking the average and applying it to yourself probably doesn't work because the average is going to be made up of a lot of people who get way lower than average, and a lot of people who max out, and you don't know where you're going to fall there. Um, you know, if you're even if you're making good income, but you decide, but you're you know. Uh, have your own company and you pay yourself dividends and manage to essentially opt out of CPP, you're not going to get CPP. And then the average doesn't apply to you. And likewise, if you're making more than the year's maximum pensionable incomes for a very long career, you're going to max out.
0: Yeah. I think that's an interesting way to put it. And I think that maybe that's one of the most beneficial things that the average can do is give you pause, you know, be like, the average, this is the average income is this. Where do I stand in that? Why can't I answer that question? You know, the average grocery spending is this, what's my grocery spending? Is it high? That feels, why does that feel low or feel high? Or CPP is a great example because that's such a, with lots of people that I talk to that don't know anything about it. That's such an aha thing for them too to be like, Oh, this is the max. Oh, this is cause it's a huge deal when you have no idea where that, pension income is going to come from the difference between 6,000 and 13,000 is well, the difference between those two numbers. It's,
1: it's just math. It's just, it is what it is. But, it, by
2: <laughs>
0: but I think, I think that that's a, that's a good way to say it, that it, it's a tool to kind of give you pause, but without further action, it, it starts losing value.
1: Well, <laughs> let's, I mean, a place where I use average numbers all the time is well, the expected annual average rate of return for the asset allocation that you have is 4.1%. So precise down to the second decimal. <laughs> why, does, why is that important? Well, in the software that we use, in the forecasts, you'll see that your projected net worth follows that as like that 4.1% every year, year in, year out. And if that's the only number that we used, and quite frankly, a lot of the time, this is such a pet peeve of mine that I'm sure it's like snooze bill when I talk about it. But if you base your projections about how much money you're going to have 10 years from now on the average annual rate of return, you are not going to get that number. That is not a number you will get because you will not get it every year. It's not going to add on top of each other that way. You may get an average of 4.1% per year, but it's not going to be what you get in 2019 or 2020 or 2021. Like the idea of what makes that number up and what your actual experience would be earning it is so far away from the rule of thumb that the only reason I use those kinds of numbers is to start where banks, like where investment statements and advertisements for five-star rated mutual funds and like that's where it starts because everybody uses that language but then you have to translate into something else so that doesn't even give pause unless you on purpose put the brakes on at average annual rate of return people need to know that that's not something that actually happens in real life rant over yeah
2: (laughs) (laughs) and another one where the average can be unhelpful where that variability really comes into play is uh one you're just talking about which is life expectancy so you know you can type into google what's life expectancy in canada and it tells me oh, it's 82.30 years again down to two decimal places and you're like oh okay so i'm gonna live until my like mid 80s and i'll plan my finances around that but then like that's not you know 80 plus or minus a year or two it's first off that's life expectancy at birth that you know, they sort of report as how well the country is doing overall in terms of keeping its people alive. So once you're already into adulthood and making money and getting ready to prepare for retirement, you have to prepare for an even longer average than that to begin with, because it's the wrong average for you, because you've already made it out of uh, childhood and infancy and your reckless teenage years of doing stupid things. (laughs) And now you're into a point where you're it's life expectancy is higher than you know that number that first comes up when you google it and then on top of that you got that variability like some people are going to live into their 90s some will even live into their hundreds now and if you plan your retirement around dying in your 80s you know you're like oh i'll be conservative like 85 <laughs> oh no, that's not conservative enough you have to be more conservative and and so sometimes you want to be precise about your numbers like exactly how much do you spend every month or every year if you averaged out over the course of a year and some numbers you want to not be all that precise and be conservative how long are you going to live well prepare for living a long time and then if you die early you leave it to
1: state. yeah that's a really funny one too because well if we knew that number precisely wouldn't that be an easy retirement plan to write <laughs> Yeah, mm. <laughs> it's also a really interesting one because so many of the break-even analysis like like when do you apply for cpp well it kind of matters when you assume you'll die and that's kind of the only way that you can make a decision now 15 years from when you'll know even the the first inklings of whether you guessed right or not, you have to kind of use an average or some educated guess about that because there is nothing else. You can't, you, you have nothing but that rule of thumb. It's not a rule of thumb, but you have nothing but that big, like law of large numbers. Somebody in this pool is gonna die at 80.3 years or whatever, but not everybody. No.
0: Yeah. So can you, can you talk a little bit about, cause it, it is a really interesting one. Can you talk a little bit about how you, like a little bit of your process for doing that? Like I know that a rule of thumb maybe it's not in general, it's, it's talking about 95. That's a number that I've got in my head as far as kind of like a number to pick, you know, but I know that you look at it a little bit more specifically and kind of averages with clients. So like what are, John mentioned them a little bit, but just a little bit what, what's your process in kind of trying to figure out the right number for age, um, for retirement clients?
1: Well, if it's a couple, I like to know what the percentages are of like what the probability that both or one will be alive because those often are at very different spots on the timeline. Mm. So the 25% or excuse me, 25% of couples similar in age and demographic to you, at least in a general sense will survive past both will survive past this date. And then based on how old they already are. And then of that, like 10%, it'll be either one of them will survive. Excuse me, ten percent of either one of those couples. Anyway, I, it's it's very clunky to keep trying to speak correctly about life expectancy probability. <laughs> so we'll default to the incorrect. Well, ten percent life expectancy probability. So we start there. But that, I mean, again, this is one of those situations where you can talk about with a, it. It can be a pause. It's pretty likely that one of you is going to outlive the other one, especially if it's a younger woman and an older man or even uh, a man and a woman at the same age so it's pretty likely that one of you and it's probably going to be the lady is going to live longer than the other one are we creating a plan that is only successful if both of you live a very long time or both of you live a very short time what if one of you lives significantly longer like five ten years after the other one are we are we relying too much on a full benefit from cpp or part like oas that doesn't pay a survivor benefit after age 64 or i mean all the things right so it's not so much that we need to precisely create a plan that makes a really good guess about when they're going to die it's we create a plan that shows sort of what we think normal is and then we also stress test it for what if? There, yeah, some of those things that I just talked about, like one survivor for a long period of time after the other. Did that? Did I even answer your question, or did I just start thinking about things and letting my mouth run?
0: I like to think that most of the questions I ask both of you, I just—that's what I hope for. That's, that's and yes, you—you you did. That's a thing um, I did. But, yeah, but but that's that's exactly what that's 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 the dream. That's why I sit in this chair with you guys, just that I can. Toss out little little nuggets for you guys to expose your w- wisdom about so people can hear it.
1: Well, yeah. but let's go back to something that you deal with a lot. So when, when John was saying like, well, you know, it really matters being precise about income like month to month, but really when you average it out over the year, do mm-hmm. you have lots of clients who can say like, well, I make $3,000 in May. Yeah. That means I make 3,000 times 12 for the year. Yeah.
0: It's one of the things that drives me crazy about self-employed budgeting is this like Oh, and if you make so this is this is how it goes. You're supposed to make a budget by putting down your income and then you break it down to categories. But if you can't do that, just take your last year's income and divide it by 12 and use that. And I'm sure that works for some people. And it just really doesn't for lots of other people. And and then it's it's useful though because this is I use averages all the time in kind of cash flow work cuz you start by being like, okay, what's your average monthly need. And you add up all your monthly stuff that you need, your annual stuff divided by 12, which is not how you spend, but it's a good way. Your business stuff divided by 12, just dividing, like getting that whole lump. That average is very interesting to people. And it's a good aha pause moment to be like, this is the big lump that if we look at, if all of this worked out this way, this is what you would need. And then you got to tear that apart and apply it to real life which I think is the same thing that you guys are talking about in every, in every phase. It's just like it, it's, it's information. It's just not all the information. And you know, on the income side, it, it matters when it happens. This is so much exactly what you're talking about, about asset allocation or not asset allocation, but, uh, but return average returns. It's like, it matters it, it maybe doesn't matter. That 5% is fine. If you're 30 years old and you don't need that money for 30 years, that 5% average is great go nuts. But it really matters when you're drawing down, you know? And it really matters, like, are you in a, at what point sequence of returns really starts to matter then? Um, and I think it's the same thing, and I think that with variable income, you try to build yourself up so that it matters less. You know, you try to build a buffer in between, and then eventually you can be like, okay, you can be crazy over there, and, and it doesn't affect me as much, because there's there's some liquidity in between. But Um, yeah, it's, it's that, that averageness, the kind of, I think that it's the cavalierness that people talk about average numbers and rules of thumb. I think in general, it's like, well, just save 10% and, or now, whatever it is, I don't even know what the adjusted wealthy barber is now, you know, just save 15 or just save 20. And that can be really, (laughs) that can be really helpful for people that are like, just give me a number, just give me a number that is okay to start with. Um, but at the same time, it's it, maybe it's when you apply the word "just" to it and a certain tone. Maybe that's when it gets nasty. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, so so in an in a world in a world where. <laughs> <laughs> but if you it's the same person with the same well, what about me? Question. Hmm. There are in the in the world of only two choices wait a minute i forgot the word binary in the binary world that you we, we all happen to live in apparently in this podcast they can either say what okay so they have all sorts of questions but what should i do about these things um and and get uh, well uh, well likely these are the best couple of actions that you could take i mean you know, you're spending a lot in your investments. Maybe you should look at ways to cut that, cut that down in, in one of the, you know, one of the ways that you can do that. Or uh, you don't have any insurance, probably you should get some. So there's that kind of advice that they could get and likely it won't do them any harm, depending. Yeah. And then there's the other kind of advice where it's, well, let's take a look at all of your stuff. And we'll chart it all out and we'll, we'll figure everything out and we'll talk about how much insurance you in particular need or what you in particular should do with your investments. And I'll, i bet a lot of the time the two sets of answers are roughly similar. <laughs> like it's not, it's not like, well, I did these things and I, re- I really screwed over, uh, but I did yeah. these things and everything turned out great. <laughs> They're probably closer together scenarios by following those two kinds of advice. Maybe.
0: I I think it's the truth seems to be from just how I feel about it, which is not how the truth works. That's not, (laughs) it's not really how the truth is defined, but I'm a millennial and I feel things and I like to talk about it. it. It feels like, there's a big group of things where that works. And then there's some where, where you're going to, where there, that's going to be a really big problem. You know what I mean? Like it just, there's, there's those areas where it's just like rule of thumb works and works and works and works. And no, not that. No. Oh, oh, not you. And that's where the individual advice, hopefully that kind of And of course the problem is, is that not everybody has access to that has the want to engage in that kind of advice, uh, that kind of interaction. And that's fine. Um, that's just a problem. And the nice thing about rule of thumbs, if they can sink in, like the wealthy barber sinking in to like Canadian, you know, thought process to be like, save 10%, do this, like just kind of really sinking in like that's, that's really helpful. You know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna hurt. Yeah.
1: I think there are two things happening here. So one, in a, in, in many scenarios, that is a true statement. You could do rule of thumb or you could get customized advice and they would be relatively similar and you might not even know the difference in, if you didn't know why you were doing what you were doing, it was like a blind test. One of them's going to be okay. And one of them's also going to be okay. And the difference between those two is that you, it's possible that you just want to know, that it's okay to do the simple thing because you'd just yeah. like somebody else to look at it. Not because you think that there's some complex solution necessarily, but wouldn't it be great to have somebody who looks at a lot of this stuff, kind of look at your stuff and say, no, you're within that group of people who can do the rule of thumb. That's why it exists. Go nuts. I love that. The second thing is I just finished reading hidden figures, which, I mean, I loved the movie. I really did. But that book is poetry about about aeronautics and like it is I can't even use a normal voice to explain it. But there was a section where they were talking about the moonshot and they were specifically talking about the rule of 999, the rule of three nines, which is they want it to be like a 99.9. I don't actually do the reverse math well because math on the fly talking about books is not my strong suit. But essentially it was this could They spent all that time and money using the best analytical tools they had to think about all of the potential things, to calculate out every possible permutation of orbit and velocity and mass and other things that I can't even wrap my brain around. Not because, well, let me go back. Essentially because the worst case scenario was so bad that they wanted to give themselves, like life happens, you can't, you can't predict some of the things that could have gone wrong, which mostly didn't, but, and everybody kind of bought into that, that there was some acceptable level of risk. And at that level of risk, they knew that things could go really wrong but that they were going to put the time and effort into figuring out all the different ways that things could go wrong and solve for those so that that level of risk was minimized to that acceptable level that they all agreed on. That, again, that description was not the kind of poetry that was in that book, but it was just just the way that she described that process of looking, calculating and looking for all of the non-rules of thumb So there are situations, just like you said, Chris, where the the result of failure is so unacceptable that even if, for the most part, probably rules of thumb are going to work or whatever, it's worth putting the time in to calculate what that worst case scenario is and find what your acceptable level of that happening is and protect everything above that. Go read Hidden Figures. That's... That's what I want to say. <laughs> yeah,
0: you know, that's what I took away from that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's interesting. And of course that like I'm just trying to think about it in the back of my head too, is like, you know, what are some of the other rule of thumbs? Because that's like the connected thought is like, okay, so the ones we've talked about, that makes sense for And it's like what are some of the other, you know, rule of thumbs that come up, but it and, and, and then in addition to that, who are the vulnerable? Who are the most vulnerable kind of populations to accidentally following the rule of thumbs? Because, like for example, you know, I know we keep we keep coming back to the same thing. But John Stapleton was, he just, I he just made one of the points that like kind of blew apart one of my financial worlds. This uh, part of my financial brain this year just kind of really, really shining a light on that like. Rule of thumb, retirement planning, like generic, how we just talk about it on a base street level is not helpful for low income planning. And in fact, that tens of thousands of dollars of cost for people that can afford to lose it the least. Um, And so like, that's a great example of a rule of thumb that, that can be really detrimental um, for a whole group of people. And yet also people that don't necessarily get <laughs> personalized help. So there's some extra trouble in that. We
1: important. can fix that. No. Can make we it better. Work towards making that different. Very good. Thanks. I like those I'm words. I'm working like on my <laughs> statements of mission. <laughs> yeah.
0: Sandy Martin for... Uh, I don't know when the next election is, but I want to no, say that zero. date so Stop that it. people know what S- I'm saying. Not a thing ever that would ever. I'll just say 2020 because mm-hmm. that's people will understand.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. No. Um, so what are some of those other rule of thumbs then? Rules of thumb. Rule of thumbs. <laughs> well,
0: that's it's far- right from the beginning. All I can think of is like a guy named Thumb <laughs> who is a giant thumb and is ruling in a world. Oh
1: jeez! <laughs> yeah, I remember doing an episode with Jackson Middleton way back when about financial ratios. Remember that? I think that might have been one of the first episodes with you as a co-host. I think we played games even back then.
0: Yeah, that was that was that was in the rule of the games. Yes, I remember that.
1: I like the games. That's where my yeah. mind goes when we talk about rules of thumb. Ooh, I narrowly avoided at that time. Rules of thumb about like, you know, so for example, there's some good rules of thumb that are actually used in creating like approving and creating policy, your debt service ratio and your gross debt service ratio or your total and your gross, I guess.
0: Yeah.
1: Are those useful to everyone? Are they, could they, are they actively harmful to some populations of people? Oh, you're
2: the housing guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, they're not too bad. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit in that episode uh, about why use gross income instead of net, because it scales a bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I mean, some people can afford more if they want to be more house poor, which is a choice that a lot of people in Toronto are making. <laughs> That's- um, dig dig dig
0: dig
1: dig <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean
1: I'm not judging but <laughs> it's a choice you can theoretically make <laughs> no that was mean that's not what you meant <laughs>
0: <laughs> don't poke the housing bear Jeez.
2: yeah well I mean like that is a choice that I'm making right yeah totally like, I, I I could not afford this house if I had bought it because yeah. my GDS ratio would not support it I'm spending more than that amount of income on housing, but I can do that as a renter because I don't have to pass the GBS test. Yeah. Yeah, that's
0: true. Yeah.
1: I keep, I mean, the, the one I just keep going back to using an average rate of return when you're pulling money out of your investments. That to me is the most actively harmful, common rule of thumb in finance
0: yeah it's definitely a big one and it, it, it like it links into one of those you know they always talk about one of the problems with global warming is this idea that it's a it's a problem that affects us right now but it's kind of a long tail problem like it's a slow mm-hmm. and it's
2: well, yeah it's a problem is that it doesn't affect us right now it affects
0: future us It's, but it's like right in that time frame. Yeah, exactly. It it doesn't affect us right now, but it is affecting us right now, but not in ways that we can kind of. And I think that it's different. It's not the same as as your investment portfolio because you can see change. But I feel like if you've you've, it's it's the same kind of tricky thing to wrap your brain around. It's really hard to, and you can cling to this like life raft, which is five percent average returns. Be like, I'm doing this, and I'm going to get the five percent, and then carrying both in your head, I think is difficult. I, I don't know. Does that make sense? This idea that like, sometimes people are all saying, you know, don't look at it. You know, we're just looking at average, like, we know that it's going to go up. We know that it's like, if you're in this kind of you're in, following the index, it's going to kind of, we know all the data shows over time, but then at some point you need to shift that and, and really be looking at it. I don't know. Does that make sense? Is that part of the problem of like weighing these two things or?
2: Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, uh, there's a couple of good posts. Uh, Dan Bertolotti has one, and Justin Luter, and I think Ben Felix has another, uh, all on that same idea that you know the average return actually happens very infrequently. They're, most years are not looking like an average year. We get a lot more big ups and big downs than you might imagine naively thinking, oh, the average return is whatever eight percent six percent per year and then you think oh well then if that's the average it should vary between like four and ten or whatever and it doesn't it varies like way lower we get big crash get big you know 20 percent return positive return years and, and those are fairly common
1: mm-hmm. um well and, and catastrophe in in withdrawal happens in slow motion and sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between, because there, there certainly, there certainly is a tolerance. So if you look, if you aren't really, really aware of what the normal should be for your portfolio and by normal, right? We mean like between this and this in any given year and in an extreme year that might happen, you know, every four or eight years, Maybe it's between this and this instead. I'm using my hands like this is still a video podcast.
0: Yeah, um, that's true. You could hear it in the tone though. It was it, clear that right. it was clear that your hands were farther apart. <laughs> it's
1: the echo in the room. Yeah. <laughs> so um so if if and most people are not, how could you how could you look at your statements and if this is not a thing that you do regularly not get a little bit worried in the last quarter of twenty eighteen? Most yeah. people don't The vast majority of us, even us, meaning people who do this for a living, don't look at our statements and go, yep, I'm still within the tolerance for my withdrawal strategy. So because it's a catastrophe that happens in slow motion, because we receive a lot of information that we're not sure whether it actually kind of foretells catastrophe or whether it's still within the range of what we can do. And because retirement income sustainability is stochastic, like a giant game of Plinko, where I know, but it's the Plinko game. I got this from Dirk Cotton. This is, he's like a, you know, like brilliant John level kind of person. And this is me turning it into the prices, right? But like each year, your set of options for the next year have to be one, recalculated. And two, they're different than the set of options from before. So every year, you don't necessarily do a new retirement plan every year, but every year you say, well, I think I spend this amount. Let's go back to the numbers. I'm gonna spend this amount in the following year. I have this amount of my portfolio, this is what I, and I, I, now I'm one year closer to being dead, whatever year that is it's gonna happen, I'm one year closer to it. Now my range of options is this, this is how safe I still am, or this is how closer to this slow motion catastrophe I am. Most people don't approach it that way. It's set it in, well, it in a lot of ways.
0: And then you, then you add the extra factor of, I've lived another le- year, so now it's more likely that I'm gonna live even longer. <laughs> So let's Whoa. just add that into the mix.
1: <laughs> I like it. Jokes are
0: recalculate life all the mortality table.
1: Yeah. Ah, this mortality table is from 2014. What do I do? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't I guess I just can't imagine, you know, Billy from Family Circus really making that one land. <laughs> <laughs> well, family circus joke. Because it would be funny if he was looking at mortality tables. No,
1: I feel like. I don't in think all the years that, that. Was out. He <laughs> definitely did that at least once. <laughs> and it had footprints on it, or like a nobody.
0: <laughs> yeah, one. yeah. So I'm that too. I was like, how can we make this work with him like running around?
1: We can't. But Lynn Johnson could.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lynn Johnson. I love those.
1: That wasn't my thing, really, but. No. I do like the story about her going to school and getting in trouble and or the boy beside her got in trouble and as he walked past he had to go sit in the cloakroom and she went, Psst, pee in all the boots. <laughs> <laughs> really what I remember about Lynn Johnson was that she told some kid in elementary school to go pee in all the boots in the cloakroom. And he did.
0: <laughs> of course he did. You can't tell any boy. Like the age range is I'm doing a thing with my hands and it's big. Um, <laughs> <We heard> it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh man! Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing to think about. I I think um, you know in in a in an area where there's high complexity and it feels like there's all these things to take into like it like exactly what you're saying this like this Plinko game and and there's so many factors. Averages are so comforting. To be like and rule of thumb are comforting to just be like okay, if I just do this. Or this is what I'm just, I just need to worry about this. Or this is what I can expect. Like, that's a nice thing to think about, you know, it's, it's. And when we were kind of talking earlier this afternoon, this idea that like that simplicity has a lot of value, you know, and I think that that simplicity can often feel more possible and can maybe inspire more action than a more accurate complexity
1: i think you're you've hit on something really important which is okay when what's a kind of a good rubric for when rules of thumb are safe-ish and it might Mm. be oh shoot i had it and it had something to do with being actionable uh i was because i was thinking about it in the context of John's post asset allocation can get really complex. I think there was some caps locking in there (laughs) and it was basically like, well, you could really try to put the appropriate, I'm going to totally muddle it. Maybe you should just talk. I think you should. And (laughs) go.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So for the uh, asset allocation gets really complex idea. Um, there's a lot of posts and a lot of articles and that means for media and white papers and everything where people are trying to optimize. So just get a good enough asset allocation that they can stick to and that will meet their retirement needs and then just go on with their lives, but try to optimize, get those last couple of basis points, those last hundredths of a percent of return by putting the right thing in the right account to get the best or the most tax benefit that they possibly can. And the problem is that the different tax accounts—the RSP, the TFSA, the non-registered—have different tax consequences. So, if you put something in your TFSA, it's totally free from then on. So, any money that you then pull out and want to spend, you can spend all of that money. If you're going to put something in your RSP and then try to pull it out later, you have to pay income tax on the withdrawal later. At that point, that you withdraw it, which means that all the money in the RSP is not something that you can spend. So if you're trying to adjust your asset allocation by putting different parts in different buckets, you have to adjust the amount that you put in each bucket if you want to be really accurate because otherwise you're changing your asset allocation. A lot of times people find these weird results where they're like, oh, the optimal solution is to put something that's going to lose you money in your RSP tax shelter. And you're like, your RSP is a tax shelter. Like, you shouldn't be putting something that earns nothing in it because then what are you sheltering? And it's because they fail to account for the fact that you have to then pay tax on the RSP, And if you don't put more in the RSP, then you're not accounting for that. And so then this is already getting really complicated, just explaining how it gets complicated. (laughs) So then trying to rebalance across all these accounts, you've got to take into all these factors into how much tax you're going to pay. And it gets complicated enough just thinking about the RSP in in pre-tax terms. And then you've also got your non-registered account where some of the money might be... uh, free to spend like your principal amount but any gains that you're sitting on any unrealized gains will eventually be taxed at a different and so again it gets very complicated to try to rebalance an account if you're trying to follow this optimization and my rule of thumb is don't bother it's only a few basis points and it will drive you crazy just go with the portfolio that you can stick to um yeah unless you like really want to have a like hobby as personal finance and rebalancing your portfolio and stuff And so, you know, there's rules of thumb about oh, put this in in your RSP, put this kind of asset in your TFSA, put this kind of asset in your non registered. Those don't tend to work very well unless you're willing to either change the effective asset allocation that you have, or you're willing to do a whole bunch of math.
1: And and not if you guess right about expectedness in the future. And you have to guess right. That's always the part, like so it's not actionable. You can do all of the complex math. You can base it on all of the assumptions, but in the end, you're doing complex math based on rules of thumb about about asset asset class returns over time. Yeah. Mm. And yet, it is still such a siren song. Yes. Optimizing. Yes.
0: For because me, too. Because
1: optimizing. Yeah. Well,
0: but that feels like the right way to do finance, and everything else feels, like, wrong. Like, that's... You know, settling for less feels like, oh, it's like buying something not on sale. You're like, oh, why didn't you want want to look for it on sale? It's like, no, I had the money and I wanted it and I just didn't want to spend any more time doing it. Now I have it and I'm (laughs) happy. What do you want from me? Yeah. (laughs) Or paying for shipping. All these kind of like things. And I think that that matches up with that conversation. It's like, no, you didn't do it right. You could have gotten more money. And you're like, but I, what if I don't? if i didn't need more money and i didn't want to spend the time and you know i i like i i find such this is such a great example of a rule of thumb giving you permission to um to take the simple choice i love john's entire kind of philosophy on investing but like those nuggets just to be like hey here's some permission to just not not stress about that. Like, if you've got the big things right, you're going to be fine. Or, you know, focus on that, and you can you have permission to not think about optimizing everything in all these accounts, unless that is something that titillates you to
2: no end. But also yeah, so similarly with the TFSA versus RSP, there's tons of ink spilled every year this time. This time being February as we're recording this, um, where people are like, "Oh, should I?" prioritize my RSP or my TFSA if I only have so much to invest. And I'm just like, just fill your TFSA. And then when that gets filled, go and start filling your RSP. And, and that's a good enough rule of thumb and it'll work for a lot of people. And for the people it doesn't work for, it's not going to fail too badly. Like some people will get a bigger benefit from using their RSP first. But in a lot of cases those people are in a position where they'll fill their TFSA rather quickly anyway. So not such a big loss.
1: Yeah, uh, mm. that's it, that was the noise. Mm.
2: Yeah,
0: <laughs> it, it is, it, I think that it's that weird balance and kind of that tricky balance of like, maybe who you get your permission from <laughs> to take the rule of thumb, you know, oh.
2: Although that TFSA versus RSP rule, nice rule of thumb works for lots of people does not work for American Canadian dual citizens. <laughs> no, no, that's don't do that. <laughs> yeah. So again, e- even a nice simple rule of thumb that works for lots of people. There's still cases where the rule of thumb doesn't work so well. Yeah. But it's, it's,
0: yeah, it's always going to be the thing the exception makes the rule. There's just like you make a rule and there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes with it. But it, it kind of, it, it dovetails a little bit off of our last episode that we recorded we were talking about, the rules for freaking out, and kind of building rules around your own, whether it's your portfolio or whether it's your cash flow, to kind of say, "It's like when am I allowed to freak out?" And um, maybe it's the same thing with rules of thumb, just to kind of, which rules of thumb am I giving myself permission to follow, and and why, you know, making, putting, trying to make a little bit more of a thoughtful decision about not just accepting them on face value. And that doesn't mean you have to do a deep dive on all of them, but just to kind of say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go with these. um, And, and this is the reason why, and and this is, I don't know, this is the bandwidth that I have for this right now. Like you can't afford to dig them all to the bones for every time. Like, right. Or is that, is that silly?
1: Well, I think you need, I think there's something at the crossroads of is, is if I get this wrong, like what's the worst that could happen and is that catastrophic so for example if i'm if i didn't know that as an american citizen i shouldn't have a tfsa because of all the wonky tax rules and having to file a irs return let don't let me get into that but um, if i didn't know that and i had what's the limit now 61 i should know that too some amount of six somewhere around sixty thousand dollars so, on sixty thousand dollars, I got that in my TFSA. I'm a U.S. citizen. Suddenly, I realized, oh no, I was supposed to be filing income tax returns and reporting all that income. Is that catastrophic? It's annoying. It's not catastrophic.
0: But the thing is, is that you don't know that until you know that, and so you're following a rule of thumb. This is it. That's a helpful way to look at rules of thumb from those of us espousing mm-hmm. rules of thumb, mm-hmm. but it's not helpful for the person who's making that decision because. The TFSA one is is a bit tough because that specific decision is just if you don't know that then you don't know that and you can't weigh that back and forth. But when you're talking about accepting asset, you know, the right that kind of average asset allocation or you know right. time that you're going to stretch out your thing again, it's it's just I don't know and 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 it's tough to know until you know and it's also tough to know which ones are worth diving down into and which ones aren't. Um, And so maybe it is just the responsibility of of the people that are figuring that out to try to shade rules of thumb um, responsibly.
1: Yeah, I don't think that a solution that involves people who write constantly about finance stuff, having adding nuance as a rule is going to (laughs) fly. No, it's going to solve it. We fixed it. <laughs> Done, man. Okay, bye, everyone.
0: Yeah, that's that's yeah. going to happen. I
1: mean, it, okay, is it actionable? Does can you save anything? No, it doesn't matter if it's an RSP or a TFSA. Don't worry about it. <laughs> there.
0: Problem solved. Did you have any money to invest? No. no. Don't worry about the asset allocation. You win. It doesn't really matter when you die either. You just. <laughs> Just make it through this month, okay? Just (laughs) don't know about it.
1: Yeah, I just, I really wanted, I just, there was some kernel of, but of course I was coming at it from my own blind spot, which is I like knowing about this stuff and I know some about most of it. Not all, at all. Um, So yeah, it was easy to come up with like, is it actionable? Is it catastrophic? Then don't worry about it. No, no, but I, I think, think that that's,
0: that's really fair for kind of our context to look at it. I think that that's a really good way to look at it. It's just, it's tough to know for people who are um, kind of just trying to figure it out, you know, yeah. what's what's safe to kind of take at face value and what's
1: what needs to be dug down. I have a suggestion. Yes go read John's book, Value of Simple. Yeah,
0: No, that's, it's a really, really <laughs> no, good. Suggestion not facetious. <laughs> for the entire kind of investing asset side of this.
1: Even um, even financial plan, even because that it's just about, okay, why yeah. are you making these decisions? It's You're not, right. it doesn't go into all the everything, but it does touch enough on them that it you can start to get an idea of. Yeah. Is this catastrophic? Is it actionable? Does it actually apply to me? I think, and it
0: really is the perfect blend of like, of real information and feedback, and the permission to let some things go, yeah. uh, and like, and and feeling like you're like, no, no, I'm letting this go because of these things. And you don't need to know all the things about it, but you're like, but you, you really feel like you're doing it with a basis in, you know, real stuff, like like you like John you're making- told me. An informed decision, and also John said I could, which is the only decision. <laughs> I, now that I've just completely accepted that, I've just accepted that John said I could argue. Yeah. And now I've just, I can say all those middle steps. Yeah.
2: There's, there's so many bracelets. <laughs> <laughs> John said I could.
0: John said I could. J S I C. Just suck.
1: <laughs> well, if you say it like that.
0: Well, it's a weird whisper. It's kind of aggressive.
1: (laughs) It's kind of like there's an alien that's hunting you from the future. (laughs) And that's what he whispers as you walk into the dark room just before you die.
0: In a world. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Chris Entz, and I'm an advice-only financial planner at rags reasonablecom
1: And I'm Sandy Martin. I'm an advice-only financial planner at springplans.ca.
2: I'm John Robertson. I'm the author of The Value of Simple, a practical guide to taking the complexity out of investing. And you can find my blog at holypotato.net.
0: If you liked what you heard, please go to iTunes and leave us a fantastic review. It helps us. Helps more people find the podcast. And if you really like what you heard, check us out at Patreon. Patreon slash Because Money. And uh, donate a small amount per podcast. It helps us keep the show running. Have a great week.
2: We did it!